Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hello, podcast fans. Matt here with another message before this week's program. First of all, thank you so much to the 50 or so people that have already pledged to our Kickstarter campaign to fund a year of the media podcast. Between you, we have raised a fantastic £2,000. That's on the totalizer. So those of you that have pledged, this next bit's not for you. Go make a cup of tea. Okay, everyone else. I know how you feel about paying for podcasts. I'm kind of like you. Someone else will pay and I'll still get the program. It's a win-win. But this time it's different because we are a totally independent podcast. There's no big organisation backing us, no advertising. So we need way more than 50 or so people to pledge to keep it going. And here's a little fact. If each of us that have listened to the last two programmes were to give something, anything, we'd hit our target of £9,000 in a moment. That means more Emily Bell, more Stig Abel, more Paul Robinson, a whole year of shows and fewer messages from me. And there's some great rewards for pledging, including an invitation to the first ever media podcast, Autumn Ball. It's where we'll get together all of our contributors and celebrate a job well done. There'll be a fiendishly difficult media quiz and some very special guests. But we can only do this if we reach our goal of £9,000. So, pause the recording. Pledge at themediapodcast.com and we'll still be here next month. Do it now. The Media Podcast is a PPM production and not affiliated with The Guardian in any way. And now, the show. Hello and welcome to the Media Podcast. I'm Ollie Mann. On today's show, record-breaking global ratings for World Cup coverage, The Telegraph loses more big names in Jason Seekin's move to digital, Jeremy Paxman leaves Newsnight with big shoes to fill, and PR firms promise to put down their sock puppets and stop abusing Wikipedia. That's all to come on today's Media Podcast from themediapodcast.com. 
With me in uh, Soho are Faraz Osman, creative director at television indie Lemonade Money, and on the line from San Francisco, yes, it's the director of the Tao Centre for Digital Journalism, the one and only Emily Bell. Uh, hello to you both. Uh, Faraz, let's start with you. Uh, what are you working on at the moment? You seem to be tweeting about Nando's a lot. Yeah, it's a bit of a crazy few weeks at the moment. Um, we are doing lots of work with Nando's at the moment, lots of YouTube content for them. You can check that out at youtube.com forward slash Nando's UK. Do you get one of the special cards that means you get the free I chicken? I can't talk about that. And nor Is that I, a yes? Nor can I say we might be the only production <gasps> company that can't talk about that. I think it might be a yes, um, listeners. What are you doing for lunch later? Oh my God, best day of my life ever. Uh, Emily, let's start by talking about a bit of telly from your point of view, because uh, there's uh, a British comedian some may have heard of, John Oliver, who's now left The Daily Show and he's got his own HBO show out there, hasn't he? How's that been going? He is one of those people who has barely ever been heard of in the UK, but who is gradually becoming, you know, quite a big star over here in the States. He's got his own show now, uh, which is streamed after Game of Thrones. <laughs> always, always, always good to follow that on Sunday night, some Sunday nights. It really does look at extremely kind of serious uh, and difficult issues like the crisis in northern Iraq. And yes, there's satire and humour. And he's been, he's been doing that now for a few weeks. And it's actually, generally speaking, got an extremely favourable reaction. And when I, say, you know, when I say extremely favourable reaction, I mean from, you know, liberals in New York. I have mm. no idea what Texas makes of it. Um, they're probably not completely on board with it. Faraz, why do you think it is that uh, a show like that can work in the US, and yet when we try and do something here like that, you know, even just a weekly satirical comedy show, it never really has the traction where people are talking about it in positive ways like that. Is it the size of the writer's room? Yeah. Is it, you know, what is it? It's, it's, I think it's as simple as that. I think that the way that American TV does comedy with huge writers' rooms and so many writers, it's, it just means that the investment that they have behind the scenes in, in stuff like that means that they kind of get away with, uh, well, they can do that, that that level of gags and do Saturday Night Live. And, and, you know, I'm a huge fan of The Daily Show. I think that, I think also what's really interesting about what HBO have done with John Oliver is, is that it feels like that show is getting known for these big viral rants that he's doing. And it feels like there's a strategy there to build on the fact that Game of Thrones is doing so well online and via Twitter. What can we do to kind of embrace that even further with, with their schedules? And I think that John Oliver has got a very good, smart look at the news when he's been... And, and with that is bringing in some really clever formats where he's using interactivity and using Twitter and using hashtags and, and kind of getting people to almost campaign around ideas that he has. And that's really smart logic from HBO in capitalising on their online presence in, in a way that's not just, hey, tweet us now and follow us on Instagram. It's, it's actually using that to build content into the show. Now, Emily, you are joining us uh, via Skype. Uh, sadly, it's audio-only Skype, so we can't see the video, but I imagine that you are wearing one of those uh, hoodies that Asda are selling covered in the <laughs> St. George's flag, uh, because, of course, it's World Cup season, uh, and in America, it's bigger than ever before. Yes. So, well, I'm saying yes. What do I know? This is a warning for anecdata coming up. So I was out at a work business dinner the other day. And for the first time ever in America, there were people around the table who were Americans who were very <laughs> antsy about the fact that they couldn't get the score, the football scores on their mobiles because there was no signal. Surely so they, they call it soccer, though, don't they? 
I do call it soccer, which is slightly, which is slightly great. I ha- I now have this thing where I say football and I make a kind of a round signal with my hands. It's almost like <laughs> when I when I'm saying this sort of in, in you know classes of international students when I talk about football, there's like an international sign for football. There's always a ra- rush of interest in football in America, soccer, whenever the national team plays, you know, in in the World Cup, and there was four years ago. But it's kind of greater now. And and one of the one of the reasons for that is because you've had in the in the intervening period, really comprehensive coverage from Fox and now from NBC, of things like the English Premier League and uh, La Liga and, you know, Syria A. I can see all the Premier League matches live on telly in America in the way that you can't in the UK. And everybody plays it at school. You know, kind of it's, it's, it's becoming something where that grassroots, you know, engagement with the sport, you know, it's, it's got such a long way to go before it can compete with NBA, you know, basketball or, or MLB baseball or NFL football makes a kind of a cigar shape shape with my hands. <laughs> But it's, this is a kind of a progress which has been driven by the rest of the world. And again, where, you know, kind of social media plays its part because, you know, Americans can see that there's something going on that everybody else is really, really excited about. And hey, they have a team that doesn't completely suck, which is, um, which is a new thing for them as well. Yes, well, talking of which for us, let's uh, focus on England for a bit. I presume that America <laughs> also has a commentary team that hasn't attracted quite the amount of uh, adverse publicity that ours have in the UK. Uh, the BBC got 445 complaints over Phil Neville's commentary. Uh, The former Man United player was the butt of many Twitter timelines. Danny Baker called him monotone. Comedy writer Simon Blackwell compared him to a dignitas satnav. For us, what have you made of the uh, the football coverage thus far? Uh, The the Phil Neville thing is really interesting. I think that there's a... Uh, it reminds me of when Otis did um, the Commonwealth Games for Channel 4 mm. and, and the backlash for that, uh, kind of, head of at the head of the Paralympics. There are a few issues around this. One, number one, we love having a moan and kind of finding anything to moan about around a World Cup is part of the fun. I kind of think that people actually quite enjoy it when they can shout at referees and shout at commentators and, uh, you know, see some magic spray kind of going on the grass. All of that sort of stuff is part of the whole makeup of, of watching football on TV. And, and this is just part of it now, especially with Twitter. To, you know, if you're going to complain about something and it can't just always be about the performance of Wayne Rooney. Um, but I do think that there's an issue around nursery slopes and the fact that we seem to be getting slightly obsessed in a lot of areas, including sports, of finding big names so you can launch, have a big press release and a big press campaign ahead of your coverage saying, look at all these great stars that we've got doing all of our commentating and people write notes and you get lots of newspaper column inches. And then suddenly they go on air and they're not actually that great because they don't simply don't have the experience. I would be incredibly fearful of commentating on such a huge a huge event regardless of if it's the Commonwealth Games or the Olympics opening ceremony or in this instance England's opening game it's it's just such a huge responsibility and a real skill and a real art so it really doesn't surprise me when things don't quite go the way they should do because these people are known for playing football they're not known for chatting about it Yes Emily I mean that's the flip side isn't it of what you were saying in terms of the incredible benefit that uh, cable networks have brought in terms of bringing football to 
a wider audience by buying up all the rights. The flip side is uh, when you get a national broadcaster like the BBC so rarely actually broadcasting football matches, when they do, it's going to be a really important one and they're trying out their talent for the very first time in front of millions of viewers who are all armed with social media ready to slag off the commentators. Yeah, well, I think, you know, the BBC sports team seems to be entirely composed of people who are uh, Manchester United season ticket holders and so therefore the commentary team (laughs) reflects that. However, you do have Thierry Henry in his cardigan, which I did see passing through Heathrow on my way from uh, Europe last week. Not not just the cardigan, presumably, but the man himself. No, the man himself, uh, uh, which I have to say is a treat that has been withheld from American audiences. So there's a completely different uh, conversation going on about commentary on Twitter if you are a middle-aged woman which has no interest in how monotonous Phil Neville is, but is very interested in both in Thierry's analysis and his knitwear. As somebody said to me uh, on Twitter, he's so sophisticated and handsome, it makes me want to cry. So I say, <laughs> you have to balance, you have to count, I'm sorry for the objectification, you know, it's, it's, it's disgraceful and I can only apologise for it. Um, so you have to counterbalance that with something, you know, a bit dull from Manchester United, which seems to be always the way. Poor guy. Nobody deserves to be battered like that on their first outing in the job, it has to be said. Well, you don't need to apologise for the objectification. We're not with The Guardian anymore, Emily. We're going to be uh, talking all about Gabby Logan next week. Uh, On the media podcast timeline, uh, Tim B has tweeted in to ask, isn't there another way of doing this other than a sofa full of old pros? I assume he's talking about the World Cup coverage, not this podcast. Faraz, isn't Uh, there another way of doing this kind of coverage? Actually, I kind of think that... I bizarrely decided to listen to the Radio 1 coverage. They had an alternative commentary on on the Brazil game that went out the day before yesterday. Um, And I think that actually the BBC have been quite clever in seeing how they can get lots of different audiences engaging with the content by doing alternative commentaries alongside getting newer pundits in there and and trying out some new ideas. So I actually think that they're doing some some clever things along the way. I must say it's easy to bash the BBC's coverage because, you know, they're a public service broadcaster and that's the first thing you always point your finger at. I've actually been resoundingly disappointed with ITV's coverage. I think that it's actually a little bit lazy um, and it could more work and creativity could have been done in, in the studio work that they've done. It just feels like it's been phoned in a little bit. Well, you say that, although I didn't know that I wanted to see Adrian Childs and Ian Wright's knees, knobbly knees, in shorts, on a beach, broadcasting football commentary. But that's what you got to see the other day, in the, in the middle of the day as well. It was a big shock. I thought some law had been passed whereby ITV would no longer allow to broadcast any sport because they're so terrible at it. Is that not, is that not, has that not happened? I thought a law had been passed and they weren't allowed to use Adrian Charles anymore, but he's still there. Uh, moving on, there are more changes at The Telegraph, where several high-profile members of staff are leaving the paper uh, as it announced 40 new editorial roles. According to Press Gazette, on the way out are the editor of Telegraph blogs, Damien Thompson, and the former deputy editor and comment writer, Benedict Brogan. The new positions include an expansion to digital design and social media teams, plus a breaking news team to get stories online faster. Um, So, Emily, a focus on digital. What do you make of it? Well, I'm not really close enough to have a forensic view of it. I did hear of this in the States. There are lots of people sending messages around who have been um, laid off or have chosen to go. I, yes, you have to have a staff which is uh, has facility with broadly what one might call digital journalism. I'm not quite sure what lies behind Benedict Brogan leaving. 
it can't be because, you know, they wanted to replace him with somebody on the breaking news team. He's actually, you know, highly, in a way, he's a highly digital journalist. He's quite engaging on Twitter. Mm. He does, you know, the kind of sort of opinionated but thoughtful journalism, which actually does really well on new media. Um, so, I, again, you know, I kind of don't know whether he just decided that uh, it was time for him to go or whether there was something something more behind that. Seems He seems like a, a particular loss for them that, that, you know, particularly as you're coming up to an election, you really wouldn't want to, to, to let him go unless unless he wanted to go. I'm still not sure what the Telegraph strategy is. I'm not quite sure even what their sort of voice in digital is. You know, the Guardian has a really clear voice. The Mail has a really clear voice. Um, I'm hard to know whether the Times or Sunday Times do because I, I see them rarely enough because they're behind that great big paywall. But the Telegraph used to be really ahead in, in all of this, you know, kind of for several years it had the first and then it had the largest um, news uh, website in the UK. And they're clearly sort of trying to get that back. But it still feels a little bit sort of all over the shop to me. But I have to say the reports, you know, off the record, the, the, the off the record reports I hear from inside the building speak to a kind of, you know, organised chaos and, and very low morale. But that's also often the case with, with organisations that are in the throes of change. It feels to me like it's probably losing ground at a time where a lot of online news outlets are really getting their act together and powering ahead. So, you know, I think this may be a sort of a case of being way too late and possibly moving in the wrong direction. But let's see. I'm going to be patient with this one. Yeah, I wonder if it is to do with how many paper copies they sell as well, though. I mean, you were mentioning the mail there. What they've done very skillfully is create a website full of celebrity news and gossip, which isn't the same content that's in the newspaper. Uh, and then with The Guardian, you know, circulation is in free fall anyway, and their audience is younger and more digitally engaged. So it makes sense to embrace them online. I wonder if the problem for The Telegraph is actually they are still selling a lot of papers. Uh, and so who are they trying to reach online? And Faraz, do you, do you understand why they're doing this, particularly when, as Emily pointed out, some of the people that are getting the chop here actually are skillfully quite digital? Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. As it is at the moment, and their articles do go viral in the first place. Yeah, it's always a surprise for me about the Telegraph. I mean, I remember a long time ago when I was at school, and, and actually the Telegraph did have the biggest and best 
newspaper website and and that's what you went to when you were doing early research for coursework when you were at school and it, that seemed to have fallen away really really quickly and I think it was a shame that it kind of caught them by surprise and they haven't sustained a strong strategy moving forward it's tricky to say the reality is is that everybody needs to kind of update a space like this you felt that it was starting to settle down as you say with the Mail and the Guardian getting themselves an identity and newspapers understanding what they were doing online but the Telegraph does seem to struggle slightly along with the Independent in figuring out why, why do I go to those sites? What are they offering me? And I think that once they find their voice, hopefully they'll start seeing a movement back into a space where, where they can be stronger. But at the moment, I must say, I'm not entirely sure why you would pick The Telegraph. It's particularly when, when I think The Telegraph's content is rivaled by things like The New York Times and Vox Media and, and these other big, you know, Slate, these other big, very considered news sites that you get from around the world which are offering the same sort of content and it's it's difficult to know how the telegraph can compete in that space i was just going to slightly disagree with that actually and say that i think there's a huge opportunity somewhere online for you know a center right you know the moderate right publication because if you think about it you know there isn't such a thing either in the uk or or the us that has a really brilliant sort of coherent and thoughtful digital strategy. It's been left to the lefties, as it were. And, you know, and the mail is a different thing. The mail, is, uh, as Farah says, is quite rightly has, it's pursued a totally different direction online. So I think there is a, a, there's a really significant opportunity for the Telegraph, but they just don't, I'm sorry to say, they don't have the leadership. You know, the, the kind of actually sort of digital leadership is difficult. And in journalism, there are very few people who can do it at the moment because you need a certain amount of experience. And also, if you're, if you're struggling with, you know, what do you do with a legacy organisation at the same time, it really divides your attention in a way that can be fatally damaging to organisations. This is why digital, what we call pure plays, are growing faster. But I, I wouldn't say, you know, I, I think it's really clear where they should fit. It's just that they don't seem to have the leadership that can yet translate that into something which is really compelling. Some of the other media stories doing the rounds this week now, and Jeremy Paxman had his final appearance on Newsnight. BBC Two's long-running evening programme has had its fair share of problems in the past year or two. That's putting it politely, isn't it? Uh, but it seemed like it had something to celebrate on Wednesday night. Well, sort of. I mean, apparently Paxman had actually even asked for the celebrations to be slightly toned down and not take up the whole show self-indulgently. But there was the tandem ride with Boris. Faraz, did you watch? What did you think? It was. I think it was a really great, great moment of TV. Newsnight is, is going into this weird comedy space that it kind of gets, <laughs> gets a little bit wrong from time to time. But the, the tone yesterday was absolutely right. The news piece with... Boris, if you can call it a news piece, um, and the tandem bike stuff, was actually showing Jeremy at his best, where he, you know, was was bear baiting Boris and kind of, you know, kind of wrangling him and having a bit of a play in a fight. And it kind of, it felt really nice. It felt like what you wanted from Jeremy. Even even the little bit of the cameo, I don't know if you caught it, but the cameo of the weather at the end, just kind of all those little nods that they had about his career throughout the years. I like the cameo with Michael Howard. And the Michael Howard cameo was, good. was good for Jeremy. I'm not sure how good it was for Michael Howard. It oh, kind I of, thought, sporting, <laughs> I thought. But it was... Um, 
it was it was a really entertaining show. I'm I'm not sure if that's what Newsnight should be. Mm. You know, they they kind of sometimes need to make sure they've got the balance right between being an accessible news show and making sure that they are actually breaking stories and doing the great journalism they've done for a number of times. But I I must say, you you end, when they ended the show, you did kind of feel a bit of well, where do they go from here? Because right without right. that voice, because the thing about the Jeremy Paxman thing is that he actually resisted a lot of that that change and now everybody else is, is embracing that I wonder if it will lose a little bit of the magic of somebody sitting there kind of going oh I'm not sure if this is the right direction and that kind of BBC sense of self-deprecation where they were allowed to criticize themselves and and you know kind of talk about themselves I think is a real asset to the BBC and I hope that they find somebody to replace Jeremy that can actually get a lot of that tone right as well. Mm. Well, three-year record high ratings for Newsnight. Still only just over a million people, but pretty good for Newsnight off the back of that final appearance. I I personally felt a bit like, uh, you know, here he is, this great anti-establishment figure, and there was an element of what I might call the Ian Hislop problem there, which is that in that final episode, he's getting very chummy with Boris, wasn't he, on a tandem bike? I mean, actually, wasn't he showing himself to be part of the establishment after all? Maybe that is not the best signal to send on his final programme. To be honest, I just don't think he cares. I think he was just having a laugh. It was his last show. I think that he let his guard down a little bit and he just had fun with the fact that he has this access and he can do these things and, and get away with them. And, you know, good luck to him, I think. Well, Emily, The Guardian was speculating earlier this week that perhaps uh, Paxman might go to Channel 4 News. Uh, the week before that, there were suggestions he'd be welcome on CNN uh, by Michael Wolfe, of all people. What, what do you think, Emily? Do, where would you put Paxo next? I can't imagine him on current CNN, which is, it has to be said, doing much better in ratings now that it's got rid of Piers Morgan, but is completely sort of, you know, breathless coverage of whatever the big story of the day is. I don't know. I want to see him doing, I think he's, isn't he ripe for that hello, good evening and expenses slot where they send him to look at, you know, kind of investigate, you know, the world's vineyards or, you know, there's that kind of, there's a sort of the emeritus professor of the BBC slot where you are, like Michael Palin, allowed to travel around the world in a kind of sort of charming and slightly sort of mimbling fashion, burning licence fee payers' money as you go, like a sort of a vapour trail of cash. But nobody cares because you're so, you're so loved, you're such a treasured part of the nation that everybody will sort of tune in anyway. So I'm expecting... He's a fisherman, isn't he? You could, I think sort of trout fishing in America with Jeremy Paxman, that, that kind of thing. He's done. He's done with the whole... Another set of fresh-faced, dull politicians to sort of deal with. I think let him have some scenery and, and a few five-star hotels. Well, that's, it's an interesting thought. I, the question would be, would it actually be on the BBC? Because Faraz, I mean, if he's talking to Channel 4 and the reports are that, you know, they've had conversations, and of course they would from the moment that you hear that he's up for grabs, obviously. If he's talking for t- to Channel 4, did the BBC actually miscalculate? Uh, and the moment that he said he wanted to step down should have started talking to him about the next project, not just continuing to do University Challenge? Because obviously the public do really like him. Well, I... I assume that they have been talking about talking to him about what he wants to do next and he does feel like a BBC character I do do wonder you know Channel 4 have Jon Snow and and actually they that feels like the good grandfather character that they have at four and and I kind of think if you are not too sure if they can cope with having two of them in the same sort of world personally I just want to know when he's going to appear on Strictly I mean that's got to be that's that's got to be where the sweepstakes are right which year of Strictly is he going to appear in because that's where you want him next let's be honest if you're at the BBC <laughs> and finally before we do our uh, tribute to Thriller in the media podcast studio here uh, we're going to talk about Wikipedia a group of internationally renowned PR firms got together last week and agreed to stop abusing 
Wikipedia. Faraz, what's what's this about? Uh, this is about it being a great story between what the internet's for and what PR companies are for. I think that this is fascinating. I remember there was a, a story a, a little while back when particularly online videos started kicking up about um, uh, astroturfing, where you would have lots of companies doing these websites that purported to be independent sites, and then suddenly they appeared that they actually had you know, big corporations behind them that were trying to pull up the image of, of those industries as a result. And I kind, of, I kind of think that with Wikipedia, it does feel like the honest truth on the internet. And I think it's good that PR companies have gone, actually, this is only going to backfire if somebody recognises that we've messed around. And, you know, that's when people are going to trust PR companies less. So it seems sensible that they've kind of stepped away from it. But I'll be honest, if I was a PR company and Wikipedia was first launching, it only makes complete sense that you would kind of get in there and kind of go, right, I need to protect my brand and my, my clients. And now that it's settled down, I think that they kind of go, there's clearly going to be a public backlash if we get caught doing this so we need to make sure that it's factual and let's step away from it yeah and also all you have to do to show that something's factual on wikipedia is link through to a newspaper article about it which itself of course might be based on a pr press release i mean emily last week we were talking about journalism and how much pr has control over journalism these days how much would you say in itself is based around a quick search of wikipedia i mean it all begins to eat itself I mean, you know, I I I completely agree that that, that actually, you know, Wikipedia, partly because it is a, a sort of a new type of public service organisation, has kept its integrity and actually built its reputation. I mean, we all remember when, you know, I mean, I was still wouldn't completely rely on Wikipedia for absolutely everything, but it's just in terms of timeliness, in terms of how it's edited, it is a reliable source. What's interesting though is if you look at it around, you know, particularly big stories. Most of the material that it relies on is exactly, as you say, from actually a relatively narrow set of sources, which tend to be the big brand news providers, you know, trusted news providers or whatever. You know, PR companies, honestly, uh, (laughs) don't don't really know kind of like what to think about this apart from, but surely, you know, anyone with a brain, do you really need to kind of, you know, get together and agree that among yourselves? Is that not just sort of absolutely obvious to anybody with uh, two brain cells to rub together? That you would, <laughs> you would be, you know, it, it just so much better not tampering with pages either of, you know, a brand that you're representing, or indeed with those of your of, of your um, competitors. I mean, I have to say that you know the fact that sort of PR companies actually monitor Wikipedia pages does show that they have, you know, move, moved into the 21st century to, to some extent. But it's it's as I say, having to get together and agree this kind of stuff does seem um, facile beyond belief. I do wonder as well, you know, whether it's actually the executives in control of these PR companies that are personally editing the Wikipedia pages or whether this is actually, you know, your bright spark, age 20, 21 years old, gets into the office and thinks like, I'm going to do a good thing here. I'm going to show I know the 21st century and I'm going to start improving our PR presence online. I mean, Faraz, you must have seen that in offices as well. Yeah, I think that there's there's a need to make sure that, you know, you look good online. Uh, you know, that whole story around Google allowing you to to take down your uh, your personal profiles and like, kind of delete your history and and there's there's a lot of chatter now about if companies are going to be allowed to do that moving forward i mean obviously as individuals we're always taught that we need to audit ourselves as as socially and i think it's only intelligent that companies do the same thing as well so it doesn't surprise me that this is something that pr companies would be tempted to do but like i said i think that the requirement for things like wikipedia and even reddit and and even twitter for that to, to, for that for that matter of when you kind of say things 
things and you get caught out saying things, the backlash of that is going to be amplified to such a higher rate than actually trying to do something that's fairly relatively small just to kind of give yourself a little bit of a bump. Um, You have to be very careful and make sure that the decisions that you're making online in those spaces are the right decisions. Otherwise, it's just going to backfire on you. And the other thing about Wikipedia, of course, is it's uh, crowdfunded. Uh, On that note, it's just time to finish this week's media podcast with the media quiz. Uh, This week, the game is Who Am I? Uh, I'll read out the beginning of an entry from Wikipedia. You tell me who it is I'm describing and then what news story connects to it. Sounds like a winning format, doesn't it, for us? Is this this format being registered? Yeah, yeah. Go go pitch it to talk back immediately. (laughs) Right, best of three. The winner gets a cream egg. Here's the first. I am a BBC children's TV series targeted at preschool viewers and produced from March 1997 to January 2001. I was created by Anne Wood CBE and Andrew Davenport, who wrote each of my 365 episodes. First to buzz in. Uh, well, that's an inaccurate Teletubbies entry, because it's now, it's now 2014 where it's been produced to, is it not? Correct. It, uh, the BBC have, in fact, commissioned 60 new episodes to go with the original 365. Faraz, if you already have one for every day of the year, why do you need another 60? Just because fresh content's always a good thing. Or merchandising is also uh, an attractive uh, proposition. How <laughs> okay. Are they going to introduce a new Teletubby? That's what they should do. They should, shouldn't they? There could be a sixth Teletubby. Well, you've done a lot of work in diversity. You should talk to them about what exactly they need to do with the sixth Teletubby. I'm, not, I'm absolutely not going to suggest that they have a brown Teletubby. That's a terrible <laughs> idea. <laughs> right, question number two. I am an online social networking service. I'm sensing that Emily might get this one quicker. My name comes from a colloquialism for the directory given to students at some American universities. I was founded on February the 4th, 2004 by Mark Zuckerberg. I think Emily can probably buzz in at this point. Facebook. Yes. What's the story? I don't know. (laughs) I should know this. Um, uh, I've been in San Francisco in a series of conferences. I have no idea. Give me a clue. Well, uh, the, the clue would be for me to go entirely silent now and not give you any feedback at all. Oh, can I, steal? can I steal? You can. You steal. can steal for us. Yeah, come I'm in. steal and yeah. say that it went down for half an hour. Correct. There was an outage for 20 minutes on Thursday morning, the first time it has done so since 2010. Not that I noticed because I was working so hard. When you say Thursday morning, do you mean today? Uh, yes. Yeah, absolutely. Well, this is the West Coast of America. It's 11.30 <laughs> in the morning. How am I supposed to know about something that happens at like 2 a.m.? Honestly. Well, it's, you know, by checking it on Facebook, though, like, surely. Yeah, in fairness, you I are check- in San Francisco. I'd imagine that would be headline news there, wouldn't it, when you wake up? No, I think, you know, kind of headline news is uh, if somebody's released some new kind of, you know, sportswear or something that you wear on your bicycle when you sort of cycle over the Bay Bridge. No, there's been no, no headlines here about a 20-minute out- outage in the middle of the night for Facebook. Okay, some expert ask covering there by Emily Bell. And finally, number three, who am I? Buzzing if you know the answer, you've got one each. I am a collection of computer hackers who support the government of Syrian President Bashar al-Assad. Using denial of service attacks, defacement and other methods, it mainly targets political opposition groups and Western websites, including news organisations and human rights... Oh, Emily? Syrian Electronic Army. Correct. Do you know what they've been up to this week? Who they've been attacking? Well, I'm hoping it was Facebook, because (laughs) that would be a nice symmetry to it. Um, They, uh, oh, go on, steal this one as well for us, because I'm, you know... It was in News Corp? It was. It was those sites that Emily checks very regularly, the websites of The Sun and The Times. Uh, so on that yes. basis, Faraz, you win the cream egg. Congratulations. Hooray. Yeah, big news. Uh, my thanks to Emily Bell and Faraz Osman. Uh, next week, we'll be joined by Matt Deegan of Folder Media and Lisa Campbell of the Edinburgh TV Festival. If you have any questions for them, get in touch via our Twitter feed 
at the Media Podcast. Uh, my name is Ollie Mann. Uh, I'm at Ollie Mann on Twitter, by the way, for Raz, if Nando's want to get in touch about that black card. Uh, the producer was Matt Hill. There's three more shows to go until we run out of uh, doing this for free. So keep pledging. Goodbye. <laughs> Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.